0: A Japanese on you. An
1: old Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker, I'm Scott Dalbert and I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we are continuing our exploration of the mountains of madness heading deep below the peaks... The Blasphemous Tome, issue five, is almost
2: here. It's our paper fanzine that we produce for all our Patreon backers. The zine is licensed by Chaosium and features a variety of articles and a new Call of Cthulhu scenario. Written by your good self, Matt. Yes, yeah. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to that. As yet, untitled, but that will come. Everyone who is backing us by the end of November 2019 will receive a copy,
1: or more, depending on how much you back us. And also, at the end of November 2019, There is Dragon Meat on Saturday 30th November at the NovoTel, is that how you say it? (laughs) NovoTel, London West, Hammersmith, London. That's a one day games convention in London. Lots of traders, lots of people, lots of games. So uh, hopefully see you there.
0: And now on to our main topic, I have return to the Mountains of Madness for part three
1: of our, our rather long expedition. Yeah, we pick it up at the start of chapter five. I think that both of us simultaneously cried out in mixed awe, wonder, terror and disbelief in our own senses as we finally cleared the pass and saw what lay beyond.
2: Flying over the pass, the two men discover a... Limitless... Tempest-scarred plateau, and the almost endless labyrinth of colossal, regular, and geometrically eurythmic stone masses.
0: So yeah, I was a little puzzled by the use of the word eurythmic here, because it's a context I hadn't really encountered it in before.
2: They all look like Annie Lennox, that's uh, what I'm going with.
0: That's obviously the explanation, but I I remember this is something you brought up, Paul, in uh, one of the chapters of Poison Tree, you were talking about eurythmics in there.
1: Well, eurythmy is a term used by Rudolf Steiner, who was a theosophist, but then went off to do his own thing. So in the Rudolf Steiner school of theosophy, his own branch of it, one of the things that children do in Steiner schools is called eurythmy, which is a kind of a therapeutic, one might call it, kind of a dance. And that was called eurythmy. And this is eurythmics. What does the word eurythmic mean? It means
0: really sort of artistically pleasing, or you know, pleasingly proportioned in, in artistic terms. Oh. It was just that from the sound of the word and the context I'd heard it in before, I assumed it to be a bit more of a dynamic thing, and I couldn't really place it in terms of geometrical stone masses. It seemed like an odd word choice, but apparently Lovecraft was right there. Dyer can no longer deny that these structures were constructed. But given the height and their apparent age, this revelation is shocking. This is the blasphemous city they spied in the mirage when they first
1: approached the mountain range. Woohoo, we're there! Yes, we're there (laughs) at last. Again, Dyer's thoughts leaped to all sorts of mythic interpretations, such as... The demonic plateau of Leng, of the Migo, of abominable snowmen of the Himalayas of the narcotic manuscripts with their pre-human implications, of the Cthulhu cult of the Necronomicon, and of the Hyperborean legends of formless Sathogua, and the worse than formless star associated with that semi-entity.
2: If the guy has read all those books to know what all of those things are, or just even comprehend what they are, how the hell has he got any sound like?
1: I
0: know, right? <gasps> and also, I mean... This only just occurred to me. I mean, he's made separate references in here to characters reading Clark Ashton Smith's stories. Mm. And yet here he's reporting at the Hyperborean legends, which Smith created the legends of Sothogia as being something real. So he does seem to be having his cake and eating it too.
2: Or maybe he's just implying that uh, Smith was basing his own stories off the real Hyperborean mythology. Maybe.
1: But it interests me here, he says, the formless star spawn Mm -hmm. associated with that semi-entity, referring to Sathogwa. Yeah. So the star spawn, he links with Sathogwa, if I'm reading that correctly. Formless spawn that just so happened to come from the stars.
0: Yeah, because he uses the, the term "star spawn" later on in the story to refer to the spawn of Cthulhu, so
1: I think yeah, this is very much
0: the first reference to what we now know and call of Cthulhu as the formless spawn of Zarthokuwa.
1: Yes, that makes more sense. Okay,
2: the city stretches off for boundless miles in every direction, packed with cubes, ramparts, and cave mouths, as well as many structures that follow stranger geometrical formations. These are connected by bridges and many of the buildings have windows that are shuttered with
1: petrified wood. That is some long-term petrification. I guess wood, you know, can be preserved particularly in the cold
0: Well, petrified wood is something different. I mean, that's wood that's ossified. I mean, you do get in some parts of the world, forests of petrified wood. And if you get a slice of petrified wood, it does look very much like stone. I guess almost like agate or something like that, Mm. rather than wood. So I assume that's what he's talking about here. And he makes a reference later on to how all the metal fixtures have rotted away. And it's just left the wood here because it has ossified. Dyer takes some photographs and wonders at the kinds of creatures that might have lived here. He believes it to be the nucleus of some vast civilization, compared with which the fabled Atlantis and Lemuria, Camorium and Uzaldarum, and Olothoe in the land of Lomar are recent things of today, not even of yesterday, a megalopolis ranking with such whispered pre-human blasphemies as Volusia, Rillier, Ib in the land of Menar, and the nameless city of Arabia deserter. Hey,
2: the doom that came to Sarnath gets a name check.
0: <laughs> yeah, as does the nameless city, and uh, the, the works of Robert E. Howard there with Volusia, and he's really going to town, it's, as well as, I guess, touching upon, again, elements of theosophy.
1: Theosophy, I think, co-opted some of these things, like Atlantis and Lemuria and Hyperborean and so on. But certainly, I mean, Atlantis
0: and Hyperborea date back to Greek myths.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. The men fly 50 miles in each direction and find no end to the mountain range or city. The number of barrel-shaped and five-pointed structures they observe lead them to some troubling suspicions.
0: Yeah, we get a lot of this all the way through this story, where it seems to be this, this series of revelations and, and denials that you know, Dyer and perhaps Danforth are, are looking at all these things and sort of thinking, oh, yeah, does all this mean that these were built by the creatures we dug up and, and Lake dissected earlier? Now, probably not. And it, it just seems to go back and forth all the way through this chapter and perhaps the next chapter as well.
2: Finally, Dyer and Danforth decide that they must investigate the structures on foot. They find a suitable snowfield and land the plane, making sure they have necessities like a light source, yay, clever investigators, rope and a 10-foot pole, because you always know that you need one of those when you go into a dungeon.
0: Amongst the supplies, they have a number of notebooks which they've got there to to write down observations and uh, make sketches of what they find. But they decide to sacrifice one of these, so they leave a trail of breadcrumbs, or sorry, paper, behind them, as apparently this is easier than marking the stone walls. Well, I guess it probably would be. Dyer describes this method as hare and hound trailblazing, which is not a phrase I've heard before.
2: I've heard uh, probably a more accurate description of this. Hope there's no fucking
1: wind, because if yes. there
2: is, you're screwed.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he talks about very, very strong winds on the Antarctic, but he also says that the wind is quite quiet within the buildings where he is. But, you know, what if a sudden draft comes up? It would mm. blow those pieces of paper away, and they're sort of, like, weighed down by pieces of stone or, or something? Or, but... or
0: perhaps tucked in crevices. Maybe. Yeah, it it's, seems strange. It, yeah, It is, yeah. It doesn't seem at all practical to me. But then again, I'm, I'm not an Antarctic explorer, so what the fuck do I know?
1: <laughs> Finding a broken rampart that affords entry, the two men head into the city. The sandstone walls hold traces of ancient bar relief. Many of the buildings have been swallowed by ice and the men have to look for a way into the tunnels below that is not blocked. So It's like they're seeing tops of skyscrapers and they're going in through the 30th floor or something and you know, trying to find their way down inside the building.
0: But yeah, this is something that the story keeps coming back to, which is the idea that you know, this, this huge city has been consumed by ice, by glaciers. They've just moved over and it's been buried underneath it.
2: Yeah, the ice was so polite as not to knock over all the buildings as it came forward. Yes,
1: yeah, well, because the- glaciers apparently are good like that. Yeah. Yeah. But these things are constructed, he says, of four foot by six foot by eight foot stone blocks. I mean, that's massive stone blocks so the idea is the 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 glaciers have kind of worked around them but yeah yeah i don't think glaciers do that
0: i think if they were actual glaciers it would have rendered them as rubble Mm -hmm. but um if it were just an accretion of ice that layered over the top of it that would be different Mm -hmm.
2: Dyer wonders how the huge stone blocks that made up the various structures might have been maneuvered into place there were geometrical forms for which an euclid could scarcely find a name Cones of all degrees of irregularity and truncation. Terraces of every sort of provocative disproportion. Shafts with odd bulbous enlargements. Broken columns in curious groups. And five pointed or five ridged arrangements of mad grotesqueness.
1: So if Euclid couldn't Find a name for them that makes them non Euclidean, I guess. Why, why couldn't it's you just, just say that? Way of, another way of expressing that?
0: As we pointed out in an, a very old Lovecraftian Word of the Week segment, I mean, Lovecraft didn't actually use the phrase non Euclidean very much, but this is, yeah, a nod towards that.
1: But it's not a phrase you have to use very often to use it more than anyone else, is it? There is that. I, I'm trying to imagine what
0: a provocative terrace would look like. Mm. Mm. That terrace up there, that looks really provocative
1: let's not even try and visualize the odd bulbous enlargements
0: (laughs) this whole section is lovecraft at his most lovecraftian
1: architecture
0: porn yeah it really is i mean we've truncated it and summarized it a fair bit here but this goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs where lovecraft just falls in love with his description of this ancient city and to some extent it's great that he goes into this amount of detail and brings it to life but it also gets really quite numbing
1: Because all of these buildings seem to be star-shaped. So we're talking about them being uh, like a five-pointed star from an aerial view? There are a lot of five-pointed structures, a
0: lot of star-shaped structures. But he talks about the the cones and the cubes and so on. So, no, there are a lot of five-pointed motifs, but there are all sorts of other geometrical shapes as
1: well. That's just part of it. But that's what I find difficult to picture, that these buildings are star-shaped. I mean, like, not all of them, but some of them. So that's from a, a bird's eye view; they'd be star shaped. Hmm. That just seems what? a weird way to build a building. Maybe
2: there's the occasional one that's just sat on two points of the star, while the other three points. Well, are I kind of wonder that. Was...
1: Yeah, no, I don't think that's the case. Is it? They're not like well, vertical I mean, stars. Crazy modern well, architecture. Think,
0: well, think about you know the Pentagon, the structure in in the U.S. Yeah. Imagine that now as a pentagram instead of a pentagon. There
1: you go. Yeah, so you have got rooms that go off to a point, and apparently later on we have windows at those points. Yeah. Which is equally weird. Well, they're aliens. They can do They are very shit. strange.
0: With the unfelt wind piping around them. Now, that's an interesting point. He talks about the wind being unfelt. Mm. He can hear it. But we were talking about why all these bits of paper aren't blowing away. Well, maybe there isn't actually that much wind around here. And there might be other reasons why he hears the piping, or they hear the piping. But anyway, with that wind piping around them, the two men finally head underground Danforth is nervous and shares observations and speculations that Dyer finds offensive. I mean, given some of the Lovecraft's views, I don't want to know what those are. <laughs> Even though Dyer kind of secretly shares the same conclusions, the constant five-pointed motifs all around are difficult to deny.
1: The interior structure of the city is just as complex as the exterior, and the men quickly rely on their trail of paper. Dyer gets the impression that the city had been deliberately closed and deserted in some dim bygone aeon rather than overwhelmed by any sudden calamity or even gradual decay. Hmm. And this brings us to the end of chapter five. Chapter six picks up with
2: it would be cumbrous to give a detailed consecutive account of our wanderings inside that cavernous aeon-dead honeycomb of primal masonry that monstrous layer of elder secrets which now echoed for the first time after uncounted epochs to the tread of human feet. This is especially true because of so much of the horrible drama and revelation came from a mere study of the omnipresent mural carvings
0: does seem somewhat ironic that he says it would be cumbrous to give a detailed account because ah. there are so many parts of this where i think cumbrous is the word i mean it's again an unusual word but by god it applies to some
2: of the pros in this see previous note on architecture porn
0: the building in which the two men find themselves is huge and labyrinthine forcing them to rely on their trail of paper scraps from the outset as they head deeper they find that the whole thing is exceptionally well preserved
1: The oppressively huge rooms they explore are of all manner of shapes and sizes, from five-pointed stars to triangles and perfect cubes, all of which makes it feel deeply unhuman. Dyer deduces that the city must be many millions of years old.
2: Everywhere the men explore, the city is deserted and devoid of contents. Apart from the scary shit on the walls we mentioned. There is still plenty to see, however, as the walls are covered with murals and more of the odd patterns of dots.
0: Again, Lovecraft goes into quite a lot of detail describing these you know, empty echoing passages and chambers and you know, the bits of detritus on the ground, but the fact there isn't really anything there. It strikes me as being a bit that should be really quite creepy and atmospheric. Did either of you actually find it
2: so The thing for me is because he mentions that it's all empty, that everything has gone by this point, that this mass evacuation has happened, is that it felt
1: kind of anticlimactic, that there is almost nothing apart from, hey, look at the funky architecture. I think there's a promise of something beyond, though, right? Because this is like they're just starting their exploration. That's how I read it. And it's maybe not eerie, but it's kind of wondrous that they're in this place that is older than mankind and they're the first humans to tread there and it's evident that this was built by some alien race or at least ancient race that is unknown to mankind.
0: The carvings on the wall are more delicate and aesthetically evolved than anything Dyer has seen before. The minutest details of elaborate vegetation or of animal life were rendered with astonishing vividness despite the bold scale of the carvings.
1: Dyer describes these carvings as pictorial bands, which almost makes them sound like comic strips. He spends some time telling us about how they were carved, the style of them, and the remarkable amount of detail. This almost explains the astonishing amount of information that he and Danforth are about to infer from the murals. And it may be that some of this is deduced afterwards because they have photographs Mm. and he's writing this account when he's back at home, one assumes. So he's perhaps able to piece it all together. Maybe they didn't figure all this at the time. But also, one has to take it, these are very detailed carvings. And he is quite learned in the Necronomicon and history and so on. So he's putting two and two together some of the time?
0: Maybe. I don't know, because later on in the story, um, you have both of the men coming to conclusions about some of the things that happen based on the things that they've learned from these murals. So it does seem that they've picked up quite a lot of of what there is to learn from them during their few hours of, of going through them all. The idea of them being like comic strips, you know, sort of appeals to me. I mean, even that description of pictorial bands reminds me a little bit of the French term for comics of bande dessinée. The, the idea that the, the Great Old Ones took comic art as their ultimate expression of art just strikes me as being
2: rather lovely. It's got the occasional cell of Dilbert or Garfield interspersed amongst them. No, it's real fucking cosmic horror. The subject matter of the sculptures obviously came from the life of the vanished epoch of their creation and contained a large proportion of evident history. It is this abnormal historic-mindedness of the primal race, a chance circumstance operating through coincidence, miraculously in our favour, which made the carvings so awesomely informative to us.
0: As well as the historical narrative, the carvings also include maps, astronomical charts and other scientific designs. This is very convenient as it allows the two men to piece together the entire history of this alien pre-human civilization with a dizzying speed compared to say the work of the Egyptologists of the period who were only dealing with with human civilization which is obviously much more difficult to understand
1: than aliens. <laughs> Once again, Dyer hopes that all the juicy information he is about to share doesn't encourage anyone else to visit the site and try to learn more about this staggeringly important game-changing discovery. I mean, what are the chances of that? He's, He's like saying all this stuff and making it sound so exciting, but at the same time trying to say, but don't come. But, you know, it's just a narrative device, I guess. We can see what's going on here as the reader. Finally, the men find a carving
2: which removes all doubt about the nature of the biological samples late discovered. The omnipresence of the five-pointed motif meant only some cultural or religious exaltation of the Archaean natural object which had so patently embodied the quality of five-pointedness. God, there's another sentence to get your tongue <laughs> Yeah, around. Wow. is forced to a horrifying conclusion about the builders of the city. They were the
0: makers and enslavers of life. And above all doubt, the originals of the fiendish elder myths, which things like the Narcotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon affrightedly hint about. They were the great old ones that had filtered down from the stars when Earth was young. The beings whose substance an alien evolution had shaped, and whose powers were such as this planet had never bred.
2: Hmm. Well, there's a great bit of confusion using the term great old ones.
0: Yeah, I I think we mentioned this in one of the earlier episodes. From a Call of Cthulhu point of view, this is really confusing. Because we know from the story, The Call of Cthulhu, that Cthulhu is one of the Great Old Ones, and that they are this sort of almost godlike race of beings. And and now we have these things which, until now in the story, have been referred to as older things, Suddenly, Great Old Ones, and then later on in the story as Older Ones, seem to be much more human scale.
2: Maybe should have just put a, not a capital G on great in that case.
0: Except I think this is Lovecraft once again using terms to mean whatever he wants at the time.
1: With the help of some experimental electric torches with extra batteries that the expedition had been testing, the two men set to work on decoding the murals. No one set of carving tells the whole story. Happily, one of the rooms seems to be an educational centre with plenty of repeating information, making the work easier. Regardless, Dyer still wonders at how much they managed to deduce in the limited time they had, as do most people who read the story, to be honest. I mean, it's impressive, but I mean, I think we just have to go along with the fact that there was this information and it gets the information across to us, the reader. A lot of this stuff with the city and the elder things puts me in mind of the Ithians. I conflate the two in my mind a lot when I'm reading it. And sometimes I end up picturing like the you know, the conical bodies of the Ithians rather than the the barrel shapes of the elder things. Does anybody else do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's elements of it, especially with the ramps and so on. Yeah, with the ramps mm-hmm. and the big old city and it's like millions of years ago before mankind and, and so on.
0: Yeah, there certainly are parallels. I mean, Lovecraft, when he gets around to the shadow of time in a few years after this, does seem to riff on some of the same themes. It
1: seemed, yeah, it seems like a similar concept in his head that is being expressed in a different mode. Yeah, yeah, buried yeah. city, something bad underneath it.
0: Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. An alien race that came here before most life on on Earth existed, and were destroyed by this buried presence. You know, leaving these ancient cities behind. Yeah, I mean, it, it is you know definitely variations on a theme. Mm. And I, th- I think we see some of that in the mound as well.
1: And this idea of communicating information through murals. I think we might have used that ourselves.
0: Yeah, just a bit.
1: Yeah, in uh, in the Bolivia chapter in Two Headed Serpent, the pulp campaign for Call of Cthulhu, there's a bit of that use of murals to get across some information there.
0: It is pulp Cthulhu, so yeah, we. Embrace the idea, well, I mean, you know, if if these two blokes can go along and read all these miles of murals and piece together a detailed history, we figured at least, you know, in about an hour or so, people would be able to read a couple of murals and infer quite a lot of information. Yeah, I think it's fair enough. If it's good enough for Lovecraft, it's good
2: enough for us. Indeed. Ancient info dump. As Di prepares to share his findings... He once again reminds us of the horrors the men uncovered and the deleterious effect on Danforth's sanity. You know, he seems fine up until this point. Right? He's fine, he's fine. Mm, he's all right. Surely this will be enough to dissuade anyone reading from following in their footsteps. Yeah, we would never
1: follow in his footsteps. Yeah. Stop them all. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah. It is amusing how many times he packs that into the story. I and mean, it does seem like every time he is explaining something cool, he, you know, sort of takes you know, steps aside and sort of says, yeah, but this doesn't mean you should go and look at it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm saying this as a warning, all right, guys? You, you get this, right? Then on to chapter seven. The full story, so far as deciphered, will shortly appear in an official bulletin of Miskatonic University. Here... I shall sketch only the salient highlights in a formless, rambling way.
1: So, throughout this chapter, Dyer sets out the sorry tale of the older things, or old ones, that he and Danforth deciphered from the murals. Along with the history of the Ithians presented in The Shadow Out of Time, this represents one of the largest chunks of mythos lore that Lovecraft ever wrote. Sometimes, when you read in Lovecraft, I really feel like we've plugged into a big Mythos info dump and yeah. it's like, oh, this is like the Call of Cthulhu background here and he's really telling us it's great. You know, he starts going on about some of the, the monsters and the gods and the books and uh, the whole mythology and sort of putting it together for you. I mean, yeah. in various disparate ways, but...
0: Yeah, and I think this is probably the best example in all of his fiction. I mean, it goes into so much detail.
2: The carvings confirmed that the old ones are aliens, able to fly through interstellar space on their wings. They had settled on other worlds and had set up technological civilizations upon them. Although this latter development proved unsatisfying to them. They seemed perfectly able to live without such things.
0: They almost seem to have rejected technology by the time they reach Earth, or at least what we'd recognize as technology, because obviously they are very skilled with biological manipulation, And this seems to have replaced, in almost all ways, what we might consider to be technology in in their society. The first cities on Earth were below the sea, where they created the first Terran life as a food source, allowing this to evolve into the plants and animals we know today, and extirpating any presence that became troublesome.
1: They also created other entities. Multicellular protoplasmic masses! capable of moulding their tissues into all sorts of temporary organs under hypnotic influence and thereby forming ideal slaves to perform the heavy work of the community. They call these creatures Shoggoths. Hey.
0: Well, this is the first time that Lovecraft mentions Shoggoths. Is it? Yeah. They appear in three of his stories. I mean, we see them next in The Shadow of Rinsmith, or at least we see a mention of them in The Shadow of Rinsmith, which was the next story he wrote after this. Oh, that is just a throwaway reference where Zadok Allen is, mm. is explaining about some of the things the Deep Ones got up to in Innsmouth, and just sort of says, oh, do you know what a Shoggoth is? Uh, yeah, they, they might have had one. Uh, but, yeah, they, that's it. And then later in the thing on the doorstep, poor Darby ends up being taken down involuntarily to the pit of the Shoggoths, which drives him quite insane. We don't really know what it is, but it sounds icky.
2: Abdul Hazred hinted at these creatures in the Necronomicon. Though even that mad Arab had not hinted that any existed on earth except in the dreams of those who had chewed a certain alkaloidal herb.
0: So, in other words, a hallucinogen. There's something like peyote or magic mushrooms or something like that. So, yeah, basically, he's saying that
1: Al Hazred was tripping balls. <laughs> the Mad Arab was high when he wrote his book. Yeah. And if you take enough drugs, you see Shogoths. I guess that's probably true. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah it seems, seems about right to me. The Old Ones used these Shogoths as slave labor, harnessing their great strength to build cities above and below the waters. Those old ones that lived in the oceans engineered bioluminescent life forms to illuminate the depths. Again, this is something that I ended up stealing for the two-headed serpent. (laughs) We needed light sources in dark places at some stage, and rather than have any reliance on the investigators remembering to bring them, or using something technological, I thought it would be
1: creepier that the light sources in some of these places were organic. Aquatic life seemed to suit the old ones. They could fly through the water as they could fly through space, able to survive at any depth. Moreover, they seemed to be effectively immortal, with only violent death ending their immense lifespans. While they were able to draw sustenance from inorganic sources like plants, they enjoyed eating meat, hunting and farming creatures on land and under the sea. They live for a very long time. And we learn that some of this stuff is perhaps a million years old or maybe more recent, but it goes back tens of millions of years, I think. I, I, I
0: seem to remember that the city they reckoned was
1: probably something like 50 million years old. But these things were living there for a duration of millions of oh, years. Oh, yeah. yes, Sorry, yeah. when
0: I say 50 million years old, I mean it should have been abandoned for about 50 million right. years. Their time on earth goes back hundreds of millions of years before yeah. that.
2: Reproduction seemed only to be a necessity when the old ones choose to colonise a new area. They did not rear their young in family units, instead forming communities around shared interests. Their society seemed to be socialistic and driven by aesthetic and intellectual concerns. This is kind of like the polar opposite of the Ithians in that respect. You've got socialists at one end and fascists at the other. Yeah, Yeah. but
0: I, I wonder how much Lovecraft was using them almost interchangeably at the time. From what I understand, in his correspondence, sometimes he expressed a lot of interest in socialism as a uh, political philosophy saw a lot of merit in there for humanity as a whole. But also, you know, when the Nazis came to power, he was very enthusiastic about fascism. The two don't seem to be awfully compatible.
1: The Yithians were kind of like national
0: socialists, one might say. Yeah, but, I mean, the whole thing about the Nazis is the socialist part of national socialists was... um, For a start, a hangover from the earlier days of the party. And, you know, it was was there in much the same way as the Democratic uh, you know, People's Republic of Korea is democratic. There was nothing socialistic about the Nazis. In fact, you know, when they came to power, the first thing they did was round up all the communists and the socialists and put them in concentration
1: camps. Dye deduces that the strange five-pointed soapstone carvings the expedition keep finding... Is a form of currency. This is like big coins. Pretty much. And, I mean, it's amusing that
0: these seem to perhaps be the model for the elder signs, the stone elder signs, that we see in Durlis' work, which is hollow, was it? Yes. Which we talked about when we were on our Haster episodes, where there's this guy running around with this bag of these five-pointed stones that, you know, that he describes as elder signs and using them to ward off Haster. Mm. And I just like the idea that Haster is basically being scared off by currency. You, know, you jingle a bag of, of old one coins at and he fucks off
2: there's almost something very unknown armies about that is I make the sign of the holy dollar and thou shalt dis- dismay from my presence.
1: <laughs> well so you made the joke about them entering a dungeon well now that it's not finding gold pieces they're finding soapstone stars that probably weigh like a pound or two each but, but are they fungible I mean I guess they're going to have some value when you get out so they're a kind of treasure a lot of encumbrance right there yeah the carving suggests that we encountered the old ones
2: earlier in our evolution It interested us to see in some of the very last and most decadent sculptures a shambling, primitive mammal, used sometimes for food, and sometimes as an amusing buffoon by the land dwellers, whose vaguely simian and human foreshadowings were unmistakable.
0: And these very same carvings also depict the old ones using giant pterodactyls to carry huge stones through the air.
1: Now, that ain't pulp <laughs> yeah now we're getting some pulp action here aren't
0: we yeah i mean this this almost makes me want to do a time travel scenario just so you can have investigators interacting with these giant
1: pterodactyls
0: carrying stone blocks
1: yeah Matt said that have like a killer death ray <laughs> mounted on a pterodactyl a <laughs> hey, death but, from above but that, it almost seems like something out of the Flintstones. the two men deduced that the first old one settlements lay under the antarctic ocean Not long after the matter forming the moon was wrenched from the neighbouring South Pacific, their civilization spread out from there, eventually stretching across the globe.
2: That reminds me of an old, I think it's 1950s film, Cracking the World, where this huge landmass is uh, literally detached
1: and explodes away from Earth, forms a second moon. Yeah, this was a kind of a theory, or somebody had... But it forth as a theory, uh, yeah. that bit of the Earth was broken away and, and formed the, the Moon and that it was part of the ocean beds.
0: Yeah, I mean there are a number of theories about how the Moon came into existence, but none of the current ones match that. I mean, There are some ideas that perhaps it's the remains of a larger body that once collided with the Earth back in the Earth's infancy, or that it could have been formed at the same time as the Earth, out of the same material. But, I mean, there's a less likely option that it was just some passing body that got too close to the Earth and ended up being sucked in by the gravity and pulled into orbit. But, yeah, this, this whole idea that, you know, something happened that made a whole chunk of the Earth disappear out, I don't think that has any credence anymore.
2: I know that, uh, that last one, the uh, passing object, got used in Doctor Who a couple of times. The Silurians saw this thing coming and thought, shit, it's the end of all life on Earth, quick hibernate! And, yeah, it just settled into orbit and became the Moon. And then they rewrote it and it became a fucking egg. Yes. <laughs> when a new race began filtering down from cosmic infinity, the Old Ones found themselves at war with the monstrous spawn of Cthulhu. This forced them back into the oceans, into their original land settlement in Antarctica, until Relay sank, dragging Cthulhu and his spawn down into the depths of the Pacific
0: actually, that's interesting because the whole idea that the, the matter that formed the moon was wrenched out of the South Pacific, which is the same place where Rillier sank. I just wonder whether there was any connection there in Lovecraft's mind that perhaps the instability of the area as a result of having this huge amount of mass pulled out of it, it made it predisposed to sink below the ocean depths. As the old ones settled more on land, they lost the art of creating new life forms, relying more on enslaved dinosaurs. And also on the Shoggoths. But controlling the Shoggoths was starting to become difficult as the creatures developed a dangerous degree of accidental intelligence, independently exercising their abilities to mould their forms and imitate what they observed.
2: I love that phrase, accidental
1: intelligence. (laughs) That describes so many people I know. I mean, some of them were Shoggoth wranglers. I like (laughs) to think. Imagine
2: them with hats and lassoes going (laughs) down.
1: Sculptured images of these Shoggoths filled Danforth and me with horror and loathing. They were normally shapeless entities composed of a viscous jelly which looked like an agglutination of bubbles, and each averaged about 15 feet in diameter when a sphere. They had, however, a constantly shifting shape and volume, throwing out temporary developments or forming apparent organs of sight, hearing and speech in imitation of their masters. Do you think Barbara Popper was a Shoggoth? Who? What? Barba Poppa.
2: Well, both me and, for the benefit of the listeners, what? both me and Scott are looking at
1: you kind of, Where? well, this is a sorry sign, I have to say. Barbara Popper I'm going to keep saying it until somebody, well, we'll, okay. we'll move on. Listeners will know what I'm talking about. Listeners will they? of a certain intellect, I mean age.
0: Um, well, a certain age and yeah, probably not you, foreigners. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I'll show you some over lunch. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised. I'm sure it's didn't on YouTube. Them. Listeners, look up Baba Papa. There's the original Shoggoth, all right?
0: I'll link to it from the show notes yeah. if such a thing exists. It does and you're exist. You're not just making it It does up. exist. And also, just as an aside, Has anyone else other than Lovecraft ever used the word
2: agglutination in the piece of (laughs) fiction? I'm pretty sure it's a no. The intractability of the Shoggoths turned to open rebellion. Some of the carvings depict the severed heads of old ones covered in viscous slime. The old ones used curious weapons of molecular disturbance to subjugate their slaves once more. During the rebellion, the Shogoths showed that they were capable of functioning on land, but the old ones declined to use them there as that posed more of a risk. These curious weapons of molecular disturbance i mean, we've learnt
0: that from an earlier mention. That by this stage, the old ones had pretty much eschewed what we consider to be technology, relying much more on bioengineering.
2: But everyone um, keeps a death
0: ray in backup. Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean that's what it sounds like. And so, yeah, they apparently hadn't made that cut completely.
1: But also, isn't this pretty gross that they find corpses and the heads have just been sucked off and there's just some slime and there's these headless corpses. Left. Touched I mean, like that's- flowers. Well, no, I I kind of picture it more like like an amoeba comes over them and then just sort of sits on their head for a while and digests it and then they slide off and they're just this headless corpse. I was more thinking of what my mum used to
2: do with jelly babies. She would bite the heads off every single one with glee before she would eat the rest.
1: All right, I don't know what to say about that.
0: (laughs) Your mother wasn't a shocker, though.
2: (laughs) I'm yet to find out. (laughs)
0: We see here the first mention of the rebellion of the Shoggoths, and these are slaves rising up against their masters, the slave owners. And Lovecraft has used the word slave to describe them earlier. Have either of you ever encountered anything about what Lovecraft's views on slavery were? Considering some of his other racial views, I can't imagine they were what we'd consider progressive.
1: Yeah, I wonder how this reflects on his views of slaves as I was reading it. Also, Scott, you've done some scenarios about the good side of Deep Ones. Have you done anything about the emancipation of Shoggoths yet?
0: I haven't, but there is a a short story out there, which I must admit I haven't read. It's it's been on my list for ages by Elizabeth Bear called Shoggoths in Bloom, which apparently does very much touch on that. Marvellous. There was also a a bit of that in a story Adrian Tchaikovsky wrote in Private Life of Elder Things, and I'm blanking Ah. on on the the name of it. There's certainly form for that. The closest thing I could find to any mention of Lovecraft's views on slavery was some mention about how big a fan he was of uh, the film Birth of a Nation which was very much about the end of slavery and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, who were presented very much as good guys in the film. But I think being a fan of that film at the time wasn't exactly unusual in white America. So I don't think we can
1: necessarily point at that to say that he was a big proponent of slavery. In the Jurassic Age, now, when is that? It's between 200 and 145 million years ago. The Old Ones had faced a new threat from space. This time by half-fungus, half-crustacean creatures from a planet identifiable as the remote and recently discovered Pluto. These creatures, the Migo, drove the Old Ones back down to the Antarctic once more. The war was fierce enough that the Old Ones considered leaving the Earth altogether, but had lost the secret of interstellar travel. That's kind of sad, isn't it? It is. You know, they've, they've come down here and they've been having a good time playing with Shogoths and...
0: My wings don't work. And we see this a lot in Lovecraft stories, this idea of degeneracy. We see it in a number of other stories about you know, these once great empire societies, alien civilizations that have, have fallen into ruin, have lost the old ways of the past, have become weakened
2: and degenerate. That's how well, Lovecraft kind of viewed modern society, or hmm. at least modern for his time anyway, that he was always harking back to the golden age of yesteryear.
0: And this is something that you know interested me greatly about his embrace of fascism because that that is one of the core tenets of fascism, the idea that there was this mythic golden age that one time there was this era in our society which was perfect, which was pure before the degeneracy set in. And by embracing fascist ideals we can go back
1: to that, we can make it great again but he doesn't tend to use the word degeneracy the word he uses here is decadence and this is a word that confused me when i first read the story i think because i thought of decadence as meaning kind of luxury and looking up in the dictionary as a noun it means a person who is luxuriously self-indulgent so that sounds like a a kind of a a positive you know and you're into luxury and so on and a couple of years ago i was watching the apprentice and they have to divide into two teams and come up with a team name and one of the teams came up with the name decadence but by then I kind of knew that wasn't such a good thing because the adjectival form is characterized by or reflecting a state of moral or cultural decline so It's a kind of weird word, both moral decline and luxurious excess, and the two kind of going hand in hand, as, as they sometimes do.
0: I think we actually covered this on an old Lovecraftian word of the week. The first example of decadent that you described there, the more positive one, is very much a recent invention. I think that came about in the 1970s, possibly out of advertising. But you know, during Lovecraft's time, decadent would very much have, have meant the the more downbeat
1: description. Well, they'd had it. the decadent movement of, sort of artists and, and yeah, literary movement, of Oscar ward uh, and Aubrey Beardsley, and
0: even then, they, I mean, that was them ironically embracing the word that had been placed upon them. The whole idea of of decadence at the time was was a negative one. I mean, people when they were describing the decadent movement as being decadent, were not complimenting it in any way. They were looking at it as moral degeneracy. People like Oscar Wilde and Aubrey Beardsley and so on sort of, you know, adopted a fuck you attitude, yes alright you're going to call us that we'll embrace it, you know, the same way as certain marginalised groups have, have embraced the slurs that have been placed upon them
2: Dyer notes that both the Starspawn and Mego appear to have been made of unusual matter that allowed transformations and reintegrations impossible for their adversaries. The old ones while tough were composed of the same stuff as us.
1: So is this where we first get them, Ego? Because they appear in Whisper and Darkness, but that's no, later, I think, right?
0: No, I think the Whisper and Darkness came before this, oh, okay. just before this. Right, right.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes, because he refers to hearing tales from Akeley, yes, yes.
0: Yeah, there are a number of references in this to, you know, legends of hill folks and stuff like that, which are obviously, you know, mentions of, of some of the events in the Whisper and Darkness. As well as detailing this strange alien history, Dyer realises that the carvings also provide support for the then-new theory of continental drift, depicting the shifting of land masses through the Old Ones' long tenure on Earth.
1: In fact, the city that the two men are exploring seems to be the original site settled by the Old Ones, once located on the ocean floor and now forced up into these monstrous peaks by the collision of land masses that's a long way to get shoved up from the uh, from the seafloor after all the
0: great revelations and so on in this chapter that just seems like a really anticlimactic way to end this chapter you know all these alien battles these races coming down or filtering down from the stars in conflict with each other the secret history of how humanity came to be and you know, the the rebellion of the shoggoths and all this really cool stuff and the chapter ends on this monstrous cliffhanger of oh by the way these mountain ranges were created by tectonic
2: shifts
1: continental drift but he's also saying this is their first city their oldest city and we're about to go down deeper into it down into the lower levels where the wandering monsters are much more fearsome and we'll find out more about that in our next show
0: it's time once again to say thank you to people to say thank you to everyone who listens to the show and who has backed the show on
1: patreon and and given us money at the one dollar level today we have a thanks going out to brent warren hey thank you brent thank you very much brent
2: and then we skip the three dollar level and we head straight to the terror the audible nightmare that is the five dollar level
0: yeah for those of you who might be blissfully unaware this means that we are going to sing
1: or at least make noises with our our organs and our first song is going to be dedicated to Jimmy Stalf thank you very much Jimmy hey thank you Jimmy
0: yeah thank you Jimmy and and prepare yourself Jimmy you and
2: And And our next one goes out to andrew shiffle so thank you very much andrew yes thank you andrew thank you andrew
0: Thank you,
1: i <laughs> Thank you, i
2: Thank you, i Meanwhile, on social media... And we've had a new lovely Review up on Apple Podcasts from Hobson in the Hills. Interesting and thoughtful podcast on Lovecraft and beyond. I've been listening to The Good Friends for over a year now, and I always look forward to each new episode. Their discussions have been helpful in my own scenario planning. I've found several excellent fiction books off the back of their recommendations. The Loney been a real highlight. And I've enjoyed hearing about all the cult horror films that I'm far too chicken to actually watch. Uh, the recent Aster Stroke King and Yellow series has been especially helpful as I'm planning to run Tatters of the King soon. And it's given me plenty to think about for remixing and spicing up the original campaign. Thanks a lot for all the excellent content.
1: Well, thank you very much, Hobson in the Hills. Y- yes, thank you very much. What's the Loney? I
2: don't even remember I, that. Uh, Scott, I, Scott mentioned it. Yeah, ah. I
0: recommended it during our folk horror episode. A book by Andrew Michael Hurley about a church trip to a shrine in England in the 1970s, which goes
1: weird. And we've had some great feedback on our recent episode about the occult and Lovecraft. The Wookiee on Discord says, The part about Crowley painting himself orange to become invisible was quite interesting. You can imagine polite society just ignoring him and his weird ways. So in a way, he really did become invisible. On a similar note, the best modern invisibility cloak is a yellow high-vis vest and a hard hat. Add a clipboard for extra effect. Doors will open for you, and no questions will be asked. You can get anywhere. I know this from experience, although this is more down to psychological conditioning towards perceived authority figures, as opposed to just being polite to an eccentric. Invisibility is subjective. Might work a bit different in Paris, though. Right now, I was, with well, the uh, Yellow Vest protests.
2: My comment here would still stand that anyone in their right mind would indeed let the wookie win. <laughs>
1: indeed. Well, of course.
0: But yeah, I can't really imagine Crowley's shenanigans with painting himself orange working anywhere other than England. And again on Discord, Evelyn Moreau said, A campaign that might be fun to run. The characters are occult practitioners of different traditions, and all their spells and rituals are lesser versions of mythos magic, with the potential to open dangerous doors. So the characters kind of set up their own dooms by selecting or creating their spells. The keeper then works out some unwanted consequences for each one of these spells. Using them while in contact with the Mythos might be what unlocks their full dangerous potential.
2: And there you have Unknown Armies.
0: There (laughs) is, yeah, an element of that. But with Unknown Armies, you tend to pay the price up front. I mean, all right, you can roll badly and have it backfire.
2: Like me, every time I pick up the dice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But with this, I think what she's getting at is more... Yeah, not knowing the full prices, not knowing the full consequences of the magic before you go in, thinking that you're you're doing something that is I was about to say mundane, but the occult's never really mundane. But something that is rooted in, you know, normal occultism, but then have it spiral into something far less wholesome.
1: I think also as a general magic use in call of cthulhu the keeper could think of unintended consequences that the spells might have as the investigators use them
0: yeah i guess though what's different with what evelyn's getting at here is what the premise is up front i mean in call of cthulhu i mean for a start you know you're playing call of cthulhu but you know when you start getting mythos magic that it's going to be deleterious to your sanity it's going to potentially go wrong in interesting and horrible ways but, you know, if you were approaching it from the point of view of I'm just playing a normal occultist and I'm going to cast, say, the you know, lesser pentagram banishing ritual or whatever, then you wouldn't necessarily expect that to you know suddenly turn your cat inside out.
1: I don't know. I kind of see that could work with any magic, really. The players are going to expect it to work like it does in the book, whatever spells the, their characters are using, but they don't have to. Just thinking that would be a great way to have Bast on your
2: ass, turning a cat <laughs> inside out.
1: wrap up today's episode with some final thoughts about that the Mountains of Madness.
0: We've just been through what is probably the biggest chunk of history of the Cthulhu mythos in Lovecraft's fiction, and probably in most places. This has laid a lot of the groundwork for the things that we take for granted in Call of Cthulhu, a, a lot of the the history of the world that the investigators e- explore. So, I mean, what do we, we make of the way that this in particular shaped our experience of *Call of cthulhu
2: it's one particular facet of it because it is very much told from an elder thing centric perspective so it's looking at their arrival on earth it's looking at what happened to them and ultimately their fate but there's still huge parts of that earthly canvas in that prehistory that's not touched upon such as well what exactly did cthulhu and his spawn do when they landed on and um, they landed on moo or landed on Relay? Um, what was their culture like, how did they coexist, etc. There's still large blank parts. So I think it's not so restrictive as what it might initially seem to say, this is a prehistory of Earth and there's nothing else. No, that there's a lot of gaps even in that story that people can fill in and spin their own mythos backstory from.
0: That's interesting as well because the way this is presented in at The Mountains of Madness, the Old Ones, Elder Things, whatever you want to call them, are very much demythologized by this story in a way that you know, perhaps we see to some extent in uh, The Shadow out of Time as well. But we don't tend to see a lot in, in Lovecraft's fiction. That until this point, he's been pretty much building his world and his creatures through hints and implications and contradictions and so on. But here he's spelling it all out. I just wonder what it would be like... To see the same thing done for, you know, say, Cthulhu and his spawn or, you know, taking that approach to, say, not that it's Lovecraft's creation, but Hastur and the King in Yellow would almost completely destroy their
1: effectiveness. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, I think this removes quite a lot of the idea of them being gods. But and I yet, think,
0: Perversely, they, you know, the, the old ones, as they're spelt out here, are probably closer to gods in human terms than anything else because they created us
1: but they're more like scientists in terms of creators. They don't seem supernatural, really.
0: No, but then again, what we get out of this story in particular, and some of Lovecraft's later work, is that nothing in his mythos is supernatural.
1: But I think it depends where you decide to latch into it when you're running Call of Cthulhu. So you can run it as very supernatural and strange, like some of his older stories, or take this more objective, scientific approach like he does in his later ones. It doesn't rewrite the earlier stuff to me. It's just a different angle on it. It's a different approach. Just because it comes later, I don't think we have to take it that it supersedes everything else um, in terms of the Cthulhu mythos, if you want to put it all into one bracket.
2: Yeah, I suppose it, because it is demystified a bit. I think the older things have a bit less of an impact to me. There isn't much of the unknown or the unclassified or... so. The Yeah, just going back to the word unknown again... You know everything about them. You know their culture. You know what happened to them, where they came. Well, not necessarily where they came from. They came from up there, out in the big black, and landed here. But there's...
0: Filt- Filtered down here.
2: Yeah. And there's other races out there, or the other branches of the race out there on other planets, but you know everything that happened to them here. I suppose that's maybe the only blank that's left, is what's happening with them out there in the big, wide universe. I mean, we encounter them in Dreams in the Witch House as being on another planet, but then that's it. There's no other mention made of them.
1: Far-removed cousins could come looking for them. That that would be good.
2: Yeah. That's a campaign I'd
1: like to play.
0: Yeah. But I think that demythologisation, that demystification hits the Shoggoths even harder. I mean, I know this is the first time they appear, but if your first exposure to them was, say, in The Thing on the Doorstep, and you've got all these mentions of this hideous place underground, the pit of the Shoggoths, and no explanation of what they are, and you might sort of start building up these very sort of supernatural, demonic interpretations of them, these sort of grand ideas. And and here, I mean, yes, they're terrifying monsters and they're hideous in all sorts of ways, but they are fundamentally... Almost like robots made of protoplasm that that accidentally developed sentience,
1: Accidental intelligence. Mm. Protoplasmic robots. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, until next episode, it's a good night from me, cheerio from me, and farewell from me.
0: Hello, blasphemous tomes dot